Hi, I'm Paul Jay, and welcome to the analysis.news. Please don't forget there's a donate button at the top of the webpage. And if you're watching on YouTube, you could hit the subscribe button. You could also come on over and hit the donate button. In a recent article in Common Dreams, Medea Benjamin and Nicholas Davies write, By the end of his second term, Obama did have two significant diplomatic achievements with the signing of the Iran nuclear deal and normalization of relations with Cuba. So progressive Americans who voted for Biden had some grounds to hope that his experience as Obama's vice president would lead him to quickly restore and build on Obama's achievements with Iran and Cuba as a foundation for the broader diplomacy he promised. Instead, the Biden administration seems firmly entrenched behind the walls of hostility Trump built between America and our neighbors, from his renewed Cold War against China and Russia to his brutal sanctions against Cuba, Iran, Venezuela, Syria, and dozens of countries around the world. And there's still no word on cuts to a military budget that has grown by 15% since fiscal year 2015. Medea has outlined 10 problems with Biden's foreign policy, and she joins us now to discuss them. Medea is co-founder of Global Exchange and Code Pink, and she's the author of the 2018 book, Inside Iran, The Real History and Politics of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Her previous books include Kingdom of the Unjust, Behind the U.S.-Saudi Connection, that's from 2016, Drone Warfare, Killing by Remote Control, and Don't Be Afraid, Gringo, A Honduran Woman Speaks from the Heart. So let's go through the 10. And uh, we can just talk about each one as it goes. So here, I'll, I'll just read the heading of number one and, and then over to you. So the first one you have is failing to quickly rejoin the Iran nuclear agreement. So wh where are we on this? Uh, certainly Biden promised to rejoin it when Jake Sullivan did an interview with Fareed Zakaria very early on in this administration. Uh, he, I thought, indicated that the United States was ready to rejoin essentially without condition to rejoin the agreement as it was and then talk about other stuff. Uh, now, I'm actually not sure where all this is. Well, like you, I thought this was going to be one of the early things when they decided, OK, we're going to rejoin the World Health Organization. We're going to rejoin the Paris uh, Climate Accords. We're going to uh, renew the START Treaty with Russia. I thought right in there among the top things was going to be, and we're back in the Iran nuclear deal. Everybody thought that's what was going to happen because uh, oh, Biden said it and because it was going back to something that was working and that the international community supported. So it's been a real disappointment as this time has gone on and Biden has been sending out very mixed messages through different members of his um, uh, grouping in the national security staff that have gone from, yes, we're going to rejoin without preconditions to, well, let's do it at the same time to, well, the Iranians have to make the first move and they have to get back into compliance. So uh, I think for those who think rationally about this, the United States was part of a deal. The other uh, members that signed on to the, the Europeans, the Iranians, the Chinese, the Russians, they all went along with the deal. The U.S. pulled out, then the U.S. says, okay, we should go back into the deal. I mean, that's the way it should be. 
but uh, it is very strange because I think they are well aware in the Biden administration that as, as each day goes by, it becomes harder and harder to go back into this deal because the forces against the deal in the U.S., in the Middle East, inside Iran itself, are getting stronger and stronger, whereas the forces in favor of the deal are getting weaker and weaker. Now, uh, something like 140 members of the of Congress, of the House, signed a, uh, some kind of letter, document, calling for actually reopening the whole negotiation and including other stuff. And I assume other stuff means primarily ballistic missiles, which, which non-nuclear ballistic missiles, which Iran has a right to have as many non-nuclear ballistic missiles. Uh, frankly, Iran has a right to nuclear weapons if it wants it, it's just not under this agreement. So they, assuming that agreement goes ahead, uh, they, they won't do that. But this 140 or so members of the House, they're, they're trying to scuttle the whole deal, really. Well, not only did they say that the missiles should be part of it, they also said Iran's, quote, malign behavior in the region should be part of it, part of it as well as the human rights issues internally in Iran. So uh, the fact that they got 70 Democrats to go along with this is very disconcerting. And the main Democrat that helped organize it, a guy named Anthony Brown from Annapolis, Maryland, we just went and did a protest in front of his office and we got a hold of him during a town hall, a virtual town hall, and he tried to backtrack saying, well, you know, we really are supportive of the Biden administration in this and maybe, yeah, we should lift some sanctions, but Let's be realistic. Anybody who works with 70 Republicans who are known to be against the deal and who throws everything but the kitchen sink into a broader, more comprehensive deal is basically saying, forget this deal, because they know Iran would never agree to that at all. Yeah, let's talk about the malign behavior, because if I understand it correctly, it, it means, number one, support for Hezbollah, which Iran has every bloody right to. Hezbollah is a legitimate organization in Lebanon, and, and, and it's actually part of the government, or at least it was last time I, I looked. Uh, and Iran has every right to have relations with Hezbollah. Like, where's the malign behavior? Like, in Iraq, there, yeah, there's groups in Iraq that support uh, Iran and vice versa, but it's a neighboring country and the Iraqi government is, has good relations with Iran. Uh, where's the malign behavior? Well, they would certainly say those too, and they would say that Iranian-backed militias are attacking uh, U.S. personnel and U.S. contractors in Iraq. But one must say, uh, didn't the Iraqis ask the U.S. to leave? And why is the U.S. there to begin with? And if you really want to uh, uh, protect the U.S. personnel, how about getting them out of there? The other place that the uh, uh, signers of this letter would say there's malign behavior is in Yemen. And certainly there we can say that it was the Saudis who first were the outsiders who got involved in an internal dispute inside Yemen. And it was only later that the Iranians got involved in helping the Houthis. Uh, they would also point to Syria, but there you could say it's the government in power, whether you like it or not, uh, Assad who invited uh, the Iranians in. So um, there, it, it really is only to say that Iran is not on the same side as the, the United States in these places, and that's what makes it malign behavior. 
And uh, in addition to these members of the House who we talked about, there is a letter that's going to be coming out very soon from the hawkish of all hawks, Lindsey Graham, the Republican in the Senate, who has never seen a war he didn't like, uh, and Bob Menendez, who's the Democrat, who is now the head of the foreign of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and they are getting all, all probably almost all the Republicans, and then peeling a, off a couple of Democrats as well. So it is to say that there is the more time that goes by, the more these forces against the deal are building. And guess who is behind these letters? It might not come as a surprise to you, Paul, that it is the pro-Israel lobby in the United States, APAC, that is behind this. And they never wanted the deal. They didn't want it the last time around under Obama. And they have uh, a lot of time and they have a lot of members who have been bombarding their congresspeople to say, sign these letters, show your opposition to this deal. And that's why I think the Biden administration is really blowing it uh, by taking so long and increasing the political price they will have to pay if indeed they do then go ahead and rejoin the deal. Uh, what this is obviously really about is they don't want to accept that Iran is a regional power. They don't, I mean, the United States doesn't like regional powers anywhere because if you want to be the global hegemon, it means you got to be the hegemon in every region. But Biden, I remember this has stuck with me over the years. In 2008, uh, during the election, he's debating, I guess, who was it? Would it have been Palin in 2008, I guess? Uh, anyway, but Biden says, if you didn't want Iran to be a regional power, you shouldn't have invaded Iraq, which is, it was a rational statement. He says, you have to accept Iran as a regional power. That's the reality after the Iraq war. Fr frankly, it was a regional power before the, the Iraq war, but not at the level uh, after the Iraq war. So Biden understood the situation. But but uh, we'll see if, if he asserts that rationality. But just in terms of who else in the Senate is behind this, uh, Chuck Schumer was always against this deal. Is his hand here somewhere? <laughs> well, it's a funny situation now with Chuck Schumer. Uh, there's nothing like the threat of an opponent, opponent coming from the left, uh, like the brilliant AOC from the squad and rumors being out there that perhaps she would challenge him that has suddenly turned Chuck Sch Schumer into a flaming uh, radical. And so he hasn't come out in opposition to the deal now. Uh, and uh, I think uh, he is sort of under control um, because he doesn't want to see, be seen as somebody who is now negotiating with the likes of Lindsey Graham. So that's a good thing. Well, also, also as majority leader, he can't come out against an what at least was an important plank of Biden's foreign Well, policy. that's right. And, you know, the way that we've been talking about this, we've been saying, how can any Democrat come out and sabotage uh, what the Biden administration wants to do? Although, as all this time goes by, you have to question, is this indeed what the Biden administration wants to do? Yeah, I mean, my, my guess is it is what he wants to do, but how much capital political capital is he willing to spend to do it he's got the saudis against them the israelis against them now he's got people in his own party i, I, I must say when i when i've talked to larry wilkerson about this 
uh, when, when Obama was pushing this deal through, uh, Wilkerson was helping lobby on the Hill f- in favor of the deal. And he says Bi- Biden really fought for this deal, that, that in a lot of people's eyes, they associated the deal with Biden as well, not just Obama. So he does have some personal you know, political credibility on the line here. Yeah, but then they should know. I mean, just as you were brought up the issue about Iran as a, a regional power, um, I think there's a myth inside the United States that Iran is a country that's governed by the Ayatollahs and that there is no uh, real play in terms of politics. And yet that is so far from the truth. And with elections coming up in the electoral season for a new president just around the corner, um, this is a time when Iranian politics are going to be right in the forefront of this with Rouhani and the, and the reformists having been uh, pilloried because they have gotten nothing from all of this talk with the West um, while the sanctions have been devastating the economy. And so it's much more likely that a more hardliner will come into power and it'll be harder for the Biden administration to get something from them. So I think uh, not recognizing the importance of speed has been a big problem and uh, it will only become harder and harder as the electoral season comes into full force within Iran. And let me just conclude this first of your list of 10, <laughs> I, I think I think it's important to say that these people who are kind of being billed against the nuclear deal, it's should, it actually should be framed differently. They're, these are people who are for economic warfare against Iran because the, idea, the concept of not accepting Iran as a regional power, what that really means is they want economic warfare to weaken Iran and they don't want that economic warfare to stop. That's what this is really about. Yes. And when we we didn't, uh, we've kind of implied that there's a lot of division within the Biden administration around this, but we were extremely happy when Biden uh, appointed the uh, envoy for Iran as Rob Malley, somebody who is a real diplomat. But then the deputy envoy uh, is somebody who has uh, been shown in, in talks that he's given, and there's YouTubes of this, gloating about how the sanctions have really uh, stocked it to the Iranian people and led to the increase in unemployment and how successful these sanctions have been. And that makes you wonder, um, why is Biden bringing in people who have differences in the way they approach Iran uh, right into the center of his policymaking? All right, number two on the 10 problems. You were very polite, 10 problems with Biden's foreign policy. You could have used the word stronger than problems. But anyway, number two, U.S. bombing wars rage on just now in secret. What's that about? So my colleague Nicholas Davis and I did some research looking at how uh, many bombs the U.S. has been dropping in the last 20 years. And there is a, um, a piece of information that has been traditionally released by the U.S. military, uh, that is the air power summaries that show the number of bombs in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria. 
But at the end of Trump's term, he stopped releasing that, and Obama hasn't released it either. So we don't know the extent of the air wars that are continuing there. Um, just to let you know about this research we did, we also added in the drone attacks in Yemen, uh, Pakistan, and Somalia. We added in the Yemen bombings by the U.S. allies, the Saudis, uh, from the Yemen Data Project, also uh, the bombings in Libya. And we came up with a total of 326,000 bombs uh, that the U.S. and its allies had dropped in the last 20 years, which comes to 46 a day, which is quite remarkable. And now we don't know what the Biden administration is doing uh, because they have continued with this lack of transparency. So one of the issues we are doing is trying to get uh, this air power summary back into the public domain. We do know about the bombing in, in Syria. So, you know, it, it, it didn't take uh, Biden more than uh, a bit over a month to be bombing in a country that he had absolutely no authorization from Congress to bomb in, and where to use the justification of self-defense because U.S. personnel had been attacked inside Iraq. So we had to go into Syria as self-defense is, uh, is hard to uh, fathom. Uh, but there has been some blowback inside of Congress of them wanting to know where do you get the justification for this and are you dragging us into more wars? Uh, and it's revived this idea that Congress has to repeal the authorizations for the use of military force that date back to 2001 and 2002 and have been used for the last 20 years uh, to justify all kinds of attacks. Uh, but we certainly feel that the attack in Syria was part of this, uh, uh, this um, confrontation with Iran and is very dangerous and that we as an anti-war community have to push back against it. Uh, you, you know, you have to assume that there's this meeting takes place in the Situation Room. You know, Biden's sitting at the, we've all seen it in the movies. And so he's sitting at the head of the table and on every side of the table, he's got general this and admiral that, this and that. And then somebody proposes to him, you know, he says, well, what are we going to do? They, our contractor got hit by the militia and we think the Iranians are behind it. Of course, I, I, they have no real evidence. I don't think that Iran is so in control of these militias anyway. It's not like these militias don't have their own minds and do stuff on their like own. Like attacking but, uh, but Americans that they never wanted to be there to begin with. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, and then someone says, okay, well, we can hit a, a, a we, we can't bomb inside Iraq because the Iraqi government will go nuts. So we can hit a, what we think is a pro-Iranian militia in Syria. And, and they have to discuss, well, is that legal? I mean, what has Syria got to do with it? Uh, Congress, well, we're, we're starting, you know, this is an act of war against Syria. And, and Biden has to sit there and say, yeah. Yeah, let's go ahead, do it, whatever, in the, whatever the line in the movie would be. Uh, so, yeah, it, it does tell us something about the mindset. Yes, and supposedly Kamala Harris was part of that as well uh, and thought it was a, a good idea to bomb Syria. Yeah, they just want to look tough. All right, number three, refusing to hold MBS, Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia, MBS accountable for the murder of Saudi journal journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, go ahead. 
Well, we were glad that the uh, Biden administration decided to release this intelligence report that showed what we knew, which was that the uh, Saudi crown prince authorized this brutal uh, chopping up of a Washington Post journalist. Uh, but then uh, the logical uh, result of that is to say, and so we are now sanctioning the Saudi crown prince. We're going to freeze his assets. We're going to make sure he never gets a visa to come to the United States. We're going to say we won't participate in governmental meetings where he's taking part in that. Nothing, Paul, nothing after that. And it seemed like uh, once again, Biden choked when it came to doing uh, the right thing. And he allowed this larger question of uh, well, what are we going to, we need the Saudis, uh, we need to be selling them weapons, we need to work with them on intelligence issues. Um, according to Secretary of State Blinken, uh, the collaboration is so important that we couldn't possibly jeopardize it by holding this uh, murderous crown prince accountable. Yeah, I, th I thought it was a really interesting moment in, in a few ways. One, it was a real really a sign of weakness of the United States that they can't manipulate the king to get rid of MBS and get another prince in there. Um, and, 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 and MBS, I guess, I mean, I've been told by someone, honestly, who actually knows one of the doctors that treats the king, and apparently he's fairly far into dementia. So MBS is really already the ruler, and, and I guess he's already so intimidated the rest of the uh, Saudi aristocracy and so controls the Saudi police state that he's not vulnerable. So if you, if you do the logic back, um, why do they need the Saudis so much? Well, they don't need the oil so much anymore. So it's really about geopolitical primacy. It's about being the, the hegemon in the Middle East. It's also a massive market. Uh, it's, a, it's apparently one of the large, you know, in that whole area, it's one of the largest market for American products, not, and not just weapons, but certainly uh, at least uh, two years ago, I think, was the largest consumer of American weapons. But the basic geopolitics of it is, is you have to really decide, you, the United States, to change course in terms of wanting to be the world's hegemon. And as long as you do, the thinking goes, you, got, you need the Saudis and the Israelis, and, and they won't break with that. Yeah, I think there's another factor to, uh, in this, which is the Saudis have invested so heavily in the U.S. economy whether it's treasury bonds or Uber. I remember when we first discovered there was like $2 billion of Saudi money in Uber, we said, oh my God, we're gonna have to start a campaign. I guess we'll have to tell people to use Lyft instead of Uber. And then lo and behold, Lyft had about a billion dollars of Saudi money in it as well. <laughs> so all Silicon Valley, there's just so much money, real estate in New York. I mean, wherever you look, there is Saudi money there. And that is a way that the Saudi kind of have a hammer over uh, the heads of people in the United States. Um, you look at the think tanks and the money that comes into them, the universities, uh, Ivy League universities. So um, they are very intertwined with the U.S. in so many different ways. Right. And uh, they're not going to buck that as long as they accept these underlying principles of how the empire works. Uh, they, they just decided they'll take the hit on looking like hypocrites, but I guess that's not new. They, they, 
they are. <laughs> U.S. policy is so hypocritical. All right, let's move on. Um, so number four, clinging to Trump's absurdist policy of reorganize, of recognizing, excuse me, the Juan Guaido president as president of Venezuela. Go ahead. Well, this is an example of a policy that is in fantasy land. Um, Juan Guaido was never elected president. He was the head of the National Assembly. He's no longer head of the National Assembly. Uh, he has no ability to act as a president. Um, we had a big um, fight over the Venezuelan embassy here in the United States and uh, the uh, Juan Guaido faction won out. Have they been able to issue a passport? Have they been able to issue a visa? Nothing, they have no control. Who does the United Nations recognize? They recognize the person who actually is in power and was elected and that is Nicolas Maduro. Um, you would think that with a failed ridiculous policy, the Biden administration would say, well, we're not gonna follow in Trump's footsteps uh, and to recognize um, what the UN has said, as well, well as other studies, that the sanctions on Venezuela are treacherous. Uh, the first study came out saying about 40,000 people had died. Then the U.S. came out said over 100,000 people dying because of these sanctions. Uh, so the Biden administration could have said, uh, during a pandemic, we don't want to make things worse for the Venezuelan people. We don't want to continue to see millions of people flee out of the country and cause a refugee crisis all over the world, including here in the United States. Um, we uh, don't like Maduro, but he is there and we're, uh, we have no other option but to talk to him. Uh, instead, they haven't chosen that. They've gone with exactly the same Trumpian failed dismal policy uh, that hurts Venezuela and the region. And in, in the United States, they just went ahead and gave temporary pr uh, protective status to about 300,000 Venezuelans. So um, no, uh, uh, it's a nonsensical policy, but it's also one that is really uh, extremely inhumane. And I just saw a news alert that uh, the Biden administration just announced that because human rights violations in Saudi Arabia are so egregious, all the sanctions that have been put on Venezuela are now going to be put on Saudi Arabia. <laughs> Not. I mean, it's so ridiculous. The hypocrisy is just beyond ridiculousness. And the only reason, or one of the only reasons they get away with it it's because the American news media will never talk about the ridiculous hypocrisy. They might get a little outraged about the uh, you know, brutal uh, killing of an American-based journalist, but they never draw the connection that there's no sanctions on Saudi Arabia. Quite the contrary. It won't be long before you know, some high-level American goes and puts his hand on that globe the way Trump did, and they can do another dance with the Saudi ar ar aristocrats. Yes, and the way they criticize elections in Venezuela there are no elections in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. <laughs> well, but don't, don't, you don't get, Medea, you don't get it. That's why the Saudis never violate election laws. Because <laughs> they don't have any. Right. All right, let's move on. But uh, the, the other thing I think we should just add to this is Juan Guaido has doesn't even have any credibility in the Venezuelan opposition anymore. Like the guy's got no standing at all. Right. And he's still supposed to be recognized as the president. And there are opposition parties that participated in the last elections. 
uh, and the U.S. doesn't want to even recognize them and talk to the, you know, build on that to get more of the opposition to participate in the electoral process. All right, number five, following Trump on Cuba instead of Obama. Go ahead. Well, here is very similar to Venezuela uh, in the sense that it really is domestic politics in the United States that drives this policy. Uh, when Obama lifted the restrictions on travel and trade to Cuba, um, when the uh, he, he normalized relations, it was a time of great joy uh, in Cuba. And uh, for a lot of people in the United States, um, a time to do business with Cuba. The agricultural sector was very happy. The Chamber of Commerce was very happy. And then Trump came in and listened to this small sector of the Cuban-American community and slapped sanction after sanction after sanction and restrictions. And even to the extent, Paul, this astounds me, that how can you say as a Cuban-American that you're doing all of this because you care so much about the Cuban people who are being oppressed that you will agree to so many sanctions that stop them from getting food and medicines, so many sanctions that don't allow you as a Cuban-American to continue to support your family in Cuba, just like Central Americans here support their, their families in Central America. People uh, working in the United States are con constantly sending back money back home. Uh, but Trump put on restrictions that Biden has continued that make it impossible for people to send remittances to their family in Cuba because the Western Union used to be the vehicle for doing that and they can't work there anymore. Uh, and uh, you can't, well, travel is restricted by COVID, but even more by the restrictions that the U.S. has put that they can only fly to Havana. So if you have uh, relatives in other parts of the country, you can't even fly to that part of the country. So uh, my point is to say they're not even doing anything that helps their own people. On the contrary, they're doing things that really hurt the Cuban people. And the Biden administration hasn't done anything to ease the tensions, uh, hasn't done anything to say that um, we want to go back to the Obama uh, status quo. Uh, we want to help Cubans during this pandemic, and we know that Cuba has a lot of doctors who've traveled around the world to help during this pandemic, to deal with, uh, to take care of people around the world. We find that admirable. We want to work with them on the vaccine that they're just about to come out with. Uh, none of that. It maintains a total silence when it comes to any kind of breaking down of the, bar the, the barriers that Trump put in place, including the most ridiculous designation of Cuba as a, a state sponsor of terror. I think this is so much about domestic politics, meaning mostly Florida politics, that even for the Cuban anti Castro community in Florida, it's about domestic politics and not Cuba. Because as you just pointed out, they actually don't care much about what really happens in Cuba. And, and I know I met people, you know, I've been to Cuba a few times and I've talked to people who are real serious critics of the Cuban government, of the Communist Party, and they despise the uh, community in Miami. 
they, 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 it's, I don't know if there's any support. Uh, they consider that community in Miami, the, uh, the, the, not, not their relatives and such, but the people that are the leaders of the anti-Castro faction uh, in Miami, they despise them. They, they, they think that, that they, uh, they have no understanding of Cuba. But I think it's part of the political control. It's like, a, it's like a Cold War mentality they use to control the community and then be able to direct the vote in terms of domestic elections and then gain some leverage and clout for themselves. Yes, and Biden, instead of just recognizing that that part of the uh, of the Latinx community in Florida is going to be Republican, but there are so many others, uh, like the tremendous influx of Puerto Ricans into Florida that the Democrats could be courting uh, and instead are fighting over this small segment of that population, which are the very conservative Cuban Americans. On the other hand, I think- Well, my- Oh, sorry. I, I was just gonna say my memory at the time when Obama did uh, reestablish relations, that polling was showing a majority of Cubans in Florida support. Right, although the new polls are now showing majority of Cuban Americans want a tough policy towards Cuba. Uh, but I think that if there were uh, from the Biden administration from the get-go, a lifting of some of these uh, sanctions, uh, particularly ones that harm the uh, diaspora Cuban Americans, he would have gotten, um, he wouldn't have gotten pushback from that. So, it's another example of waiting too long and uh, making it more and more difficult. All right, number six. Uh, this one actually might be the most important one on the list, but uh, you have ramping up the Cold War with China. And of course, there's these meetings taking place now in Alaska and uh, the, the rhetoric with China. I, I did an interview with uh, former ambassador uh, Chaz Freeman who was actually the interpreter for Nixon in 72 when Nixon went to China and met with Mao Zedong. And uh, Freeman saying so far the Biden policy is just a more polite version of Trump. Otherwise, it's essentially as aggressive as Trump. Well, it doesn't seem very polite anymore because this meeting in Alaska um, was not polite where uh, Blinken publicly starts ch chastising uh, the Chinese over human rights issues and the Chinese get furious and then uh, launch into a whole tirade about the United States. Uh, so uh, I, uh, I, I am so surprised that that's the way that they would go about a public meeting. And um, it doesn't seem like it is even a more polite version, uh, maybe in terms of the rhetoric inside the United States that uh, Biden is not trying to whip up the anti-Asian sentiment that Trump was doing. Um, but if you have an anti-China policy overseas, that gets translated by a lot of not very smart Americans into anti-Asian American sentiment. And we see things like that uh, horrific murders in Georgia and the tremendous spike in anti-Asian American hate crimes uh, as part and parcel of a policy of looking at China and treating China and talking about China as the enemy. Um, again, more I expect for domestic politics than actual foreign policy, because what exactly are they really going to do about relations with China, the uh, 
the, the last thing on earth is American co corporations want to do is get shut out of the Chinese market, which to, to many big American companies is even more valuable than the American market is right now. And of course, the, the global supply chains. Uh, so I, I don't, I mean, there's a lot of tough talk going on. And I'm, it's not like the rival, rivalry isn't real, because again, if you want to be the global hegemon, you got to be a hegemon in Asia. And that desire for uh, primacy in Asia on behalf of the United States is, is driving this. On the other hand, there's no way they're going to be, uh, have primacy in Asia. Well, Certainly it, not it, it, in China. And Paul, it's not just Asia. Uh, the Biden administration wants the U.S. to be at the head of the global table and uh, doesn't like China's influence in Africa, China's influence in Latin America, China's influence all over the world with the Belt and Road Initiative and sees um, uh, while the U.S. has its 800 plus military bases and building up its military, the Chinese have been uh, building up the infrastructure in countries around the world. Uh, and gaining a lot of power through that. So I think it is a grand power play and the, uh, the Biden mentality, uh, in fact, Blinken has said that if the US isn't at the head of the table, then someone else is, i.e. China. And uh, so uh, there, uh, this also dovetails into another one of the policies on the list of 10, which is the military budget. And I think there are those that profit so much from continuing with the building up of uh, U.S. high-tech weapons, the modernization of nuclear weapons, the, um, the ships in the South China Sea, uh, that uh, this is a, a, a great um, boon for the weapons industry. And that we see in the fact that Biden is about to come out with a budget that doesn't give us any kind of peace dividend, in fact, is going to be one that continues with this uh, uh, this uh, disgustingly over uh, oversized um, Pentagon budget. In the election campaign on Biden's website, in the climate plan, there was a very interesting section on subsidization of fossil fuel and that Biden promised to stop subsidizing American fossil fuel, which I, I don't think they've done yet, unless I missed something. Uh, but the, he raises the issue, how are they going to stop other countries, and particularly China, but also other countries subsidizing fossil fuel? And in the context of that, they have a whole section of how countries involved in the Belt and Road Initiative of China that are dependent, becoming more and more dependent on China for infrastructure funding, that the United States should provide an alternative form of funding. And at fir my first reaction to that was, well, why, why would you position uh, climate policy as a contention with China uh, when you better collaborate with China. But actually, there's a part of it which is not so bad, which is if you want to compete with China, well, fine, compete by offering more favorable financing, more favorable support for infrastructure projects. I mean, that would be a legitimate competition. And frankly, it wouldn't be bad for these countries to be able to play China and the U.S. off against each other. But that's not what we're hearing right now. What we're hearing is, you know, sort of just threats and rhetoric. Well, that's right. And countries are already playing China uh, and the U.S. off each other. Uh, but 
um, one of the areas where we're seeing a U.S.-China competition in a very uh, dangerous way is not only um, uh, U.S. surrounding China more uh, with its military bases and its war games, uh, but also forcing China to increase the money that they spend on their military. And they've just come out with a very significant increase, uh, which then justifies the U.S. increase. And so here we are in the midst of um, this arms race at a time when the American people can clearly see that the real threats that face us are not things that have military solutions. When you know that it's the pandemic, it's healthcare issues, it's issues around the climate, uh, the race issues, the white supremacy, the masses, uh, massive inequality, none of this can be solved uh, through militarism. And yet having this Cold War rhetoric with China just uh, doesn't allow for a, re a shifting that must take place of the money that we spend on these ridiculous high-tech weapons, uh, some of which don't even work like the F-35 or uh, the ridiculous modernization of our uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, instead of scrapping that and saying, here are all the other things we really need to address, um, this Cold War with China will keep us on this path of military spending, um, you know, down the black hole of billions and billions of U.S. tax dollars. And I think it's important to add that the Chinese military industrial complex loves all this, too. In fact, the Chinese and American military and industrial complex, they're in this morbid dance together, but boy, they need each other. You know, you can't justify, uh, I keep going to this example because I just think it's, it's, it's beyond ridiculousness. They're going to, the plan is to build 14 Ford class aircraft carriers, American aircraft carriers. And I think it's about 13 or 14 billion per aircraft carrier. And you can't justify that without a massive, major existential enemy. And, and But the same thing goes for the Chinese. I, I saw a stat somewhere that, uh, of the 15 largest uh, military arms manufacturers in the world, five are now Chinese. So, you know, the, the American uh, arms manufacturers have a, a very willing dance partner on the other side. That's right. And that's important to bring up. And when you look at it, it's not just uh, building up their own militaries. It's selling of weapons uh, to countries around the world. And the U.S. is certainly by far the number one in that. And here we go back to the tremendous hypocrisy of the United States to sell weapons not only to countries like Saudi Arabia, but to give them to Israel to maintain its apartheid regime, to give them to uh, Sisi, uh, one of the most brutal dictators now in the Middle East, uh, and you can go on and on in Egypt, in, yeah. in Egypt, and uh, and the Emirates, and on and on down the list, uh, where the U.S. wants to come across when it meets with the Chinese to say we are the beacon for human rights, and when Biden says that human rights are going to be front and center of our foreign policy, but yet so much of our uh, economy is tied up with selling or giving these weapons to. Uh, undemocratic regimes around the world. And, and I think, you know, right from the time after World War II of Truman on, uh, the Democratic Party, of course, the Republicans as well, uh, but the Democratic Party has been very, for, it's 
policy has been very rooted in the need for militarization as an economic stimulus. And, and this, you know, everyone has heard these stories how the arms manufacturers put manufacturing sites in every state and all this. Uh, anyway, it's going to take a real, I, I want to talk about what, what I'm about to say a little more at the end of this interview. But it takes, it's going to take some real mass movement to, to, to shift on this because everybody, all these, you know, traditional corporate parties are so wedded to all this. Okay, let's go to number seven. Uh, now, we talked about the, seven is failing to lift painful illegal sanctions during a pandemic. Now, we've talked about Cuba, Venezuela, Iran. Anything you want to add to that? Uh, I, yes, I think we've covered this, um, perhaps just to say uh, that there um, is a review that is supposedly being done by the Biden administration to see how these sanctions have affected the country's ability to deal with the pandemic. And that is taking too long. Uh, we're anxiously waiting for that review to come out because I feel that that would be a face-saving way for the Biden administration to uh, lift at least some of these sanctions. And, uh, and what I'm about to say is not really connected to sanction, but it's it's a pandemic issue. I'll just throw it in. Uh, but uh, the, the fact that at the uh, WTO, World Trade Organization, uh, United States, Canada, Western Europe are refusing to allow India, South Africa, and other uh, countries in the South to produce vaccines and, and, and at least temporarily waive patent rights. Uh, it's beyond belief. Uh, tens of thousands of people dying, hundreds of thousands of people dying. They're more concerned about patent rights than enough vaccine. It, uh, it's disgusting anyway, and reminds me what happened during the uh, uh, the AIDS tragedy. Uh, but this is affecting so many more people now. And uh, yes, we are working with groups in the United States that are uh, that are fighting this, and there are some bills in Congress uh, fighting this. And also at the same time, bills in Congress saying that we have to ease up on the uh, on the um, uh, debts of these countries so that they can have the money they need to purchase these as well. So that goes hand in hand. Right. Okay. Number eight, not doing enough to support peace and humanitarian aid for Yemen. Well, we talked a little bit about Yemen in, in terms of the uh, Biden administration saying we were going to stop the sale of offensive weapons. Uh, but then there's the issue of humanitarian aid and the Biden administration uh, participated in a donors conference that happened recently uh, where the UN came and said, look, there's children dying every, I think it's 75 seconds now uh, in Yemen as a result of starvation. And we've got to raise close to $4 billion, and they came up with a total of $1.7 billion. Now, when you think of all the money the U.S. is spending on so many other things, including a trillion dollars here uh, to deal with the, the, the COVID relief, um, that we couldn't come up with $4 billion to help uh, the people in Yemen after we participated in and our companies uh, continued to make money from uh, bombing these people is uh, something that is extremely disturbing. The other thing is that there is a blockade in Yemen that is keeping fuel from getting into that country and is stopping food and medicines uh, from flowing freely. And that is imposed by the Saudis. The uh, Biden administration has said, no, that doesn't exist. Well, a very 
brave uh, CNN reporter uh, snuck herself into Yemen and showed that indeed uh, there are all of these ships uh, in the uh, waters outside Yemen that are not able to dock and unload. There are lines and lines of trucks waiting to get the fuel. Uh, they can't get it and then takes us into the hospitals to see the starving children. And um, your viewers might know of uh, Jake Tapper, a very mainstream CNN reporter, uh, anchor, uh, and he tweeted out things like, um, the U.S. is complicit in the starvation of Yemeni children. And I thought that was very important for somebody like him to say, uh, and that we need to be uh, pushing the Saudis, who continue to be our strong allies in the region, to lift this blockade, allow the fuel and the, the food uh, to freely flow into Yemen, and then increase the amount of humanitarian aid we are giving. All right, number nine, failing to back President Moon Jae-in's diplomacy, South Korean president, diplomacy with North Korea. Well, after we wrote that, there have been these reports that came out that said that the Biden administration has actually made overtures to uh, the North Korean government and that the North Korean government didn't respond. Uh, and that's very interesting, too. I, I think it's positive that they made the overtures. But the North Koreans were burned by Trump in the end after these high-level meetings, and they didn't get anything from it. Uh, no peace treaty to end the Korean War that has never really ended since 1953. Uh, no relief in brutal sanctions. Uh, and so I think they're very wary about going into talks without any kind of agreements beforehand. Uh, that uh, North Korea is not going to just say, okay, we're going to denuclearize, uh, then what are you going to do for us? No, they want something up front, like a peace treaty or like a lifting of sanctions. Uh, and I think, again, this is in line of the other things we talked about, how sanctions are so brutal. And in the case of North Korea, the U.S. has also been stopping the North and South from uh, interacting with each other in the ways they want, uh, of the South Koreans wanting to uh, reopen the uh, Kaesan fact, uh, factory uh, uh, zone that had been opened under Obama when they were working together, the North and the South, in uh, new trade relations. Uh, and the Biden administration is still stopping that kind of north-south reconciliation from happening and is still continuing with the war games uh, that the North Koreans find very threatening. Uh, number 10 is no initiative to reduce the military budget. Um, I actually want to, uh, we've talked a bit about that already, so let me make a different number 10 if you're okay. And, and, and I actually think maybe this is even number one. Uh, I put China too in terms of importance. Um, the, the fact that there seems to be not a modicum of movement to do anything about this trillion dollar expenditure that's, that Obama uh, pushed, uh, passed, uh, for, to expand American nuclear weapons arsenal. Uh, the Russians, uh, in response, are apparently going to spend a, a trillion dollars themselves. This is over, over the next 30 years, but most of that money is going to be spent, apparently, over the first 10 or 15 years of that. And now the Chinese are ramping up their nuclear arsenal. Uh, and the British, up until now, the, and the British, the, and the Chinese up until now have been saying that they're going to increase their nuclear arsenal. 
And it's beyond insanity. I mean, up until now, the Chinese have been relatively sane, I'm told, by people who know this issue, uh, that they've only had maybe two or 300 nuclear weapons because that's actually all you need. In fact, because of nuclear winter, um, if anyone ever attacked you with nuclear weapons, you actually don't even have to counterattack because any major attack on any major country is enough to create nuclear winter that wipes out most of organized human society and probably most humans on Earth. So the idea that more nuclear weapons somehow makes you safer or has more of a deterrent is just completely nuts. It's, it, you know, I've, I've, I'm doing this project with Daniel Ellsberg based on his book, Doomsday Machine, and, and he's come to the conclusion, and I don't know what other conclusion you can come to, it's just about money making. It, it really, it's not about deterrence or anything else. You know, if every country had maybe 50, uh, you know, these major countries had 40, 50 nuclear weapons, it's more than enough of a deterrent uh, if that's really needed. But to have thousands and to spend a trillion bucks and, and all this talk from Trump, and I haven't heard that this is going away, this idea of low-yield tactical nuclear weapons, I haven't heard anything from the Biden administration that they're not going to pursue that, have you? No, on the contrary. I think they are going to pursue that, and they use China as the pretext for that. And I, you know, I think when we talk about this, um, it, it certainly is a massive money-making scheme. But we also should recognize how much um, there has been an effort of the global community to try to reverse this uh, from the ground up with the Treaty for the Prohibition on Nuclear Weapons through the United Nations, and that the countries and the, and the, the, the uh, grassroots groups in, in countries around the world uh, have been saying no to nuclear weapons. And while we talked a lot today about uh, the pushback of the Biden administration against Iran uh, that doesn't even have a nuclear weapon, uh, while these major countries get away with not only keeping their nuclear weapons in violation of the Non-Proliferation Treaty, but modernizing them, uh, is something that really goes against the will of the vast majority of people around the world. And I think it's wonderful that we do have this, um, this treaty for the prohibition of nuclear weapons, that it is something that we can work towards. Uh, it's obviously not going to be coming from the nuclear weapon states, uh, but it is this groundswell of, uh, I think, uh, inspiring calls from the rest of the world uh, to put the spotlight on the nuclear weapon states and to say that this is not what we in the global community want. Medea and I, we're going to do a, another segment to follow up on this because uh, we're at an hour now. And, 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 we, and what I want to talk about is why is it more of the uh, American uh, progressive community <laughs> electorate or whatever you want to call it, the left, why isn't there more focus on all of these 10 issues? Why isn't there more uh, attention paid to foreign policy? So join us for part two of this on the analysis.news. Don't forget the donate button at the top of the webpage. Don't forget the subscribe button on YouTube. And uh, see you in part two.